0: Zechariah chapter 11 tonight. Take your Bibles and turn there. I'll have you stand in just a minute. Kind of a different thought for Zechariah, uh, but I think it's a helpful one, very practical, and I'm sure we can make application for it tonight. Zechariah chapter 11, verse number 1. Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour the cedars. Howl, fir tree for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. How, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. There's a voice of the howling of the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled. A voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. Thus said the Lord my God, Now this is God speaking to Zechariah, "'Thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of the slaughter, whose whose possessors slay them, and hold themselves not guilty. And they shall sell them, say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land,' saith the Lord. Below, I will deliver the men, every one, into his neighbor's hand, into the hand of his king. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I, will, and I took unto me two staves. Now, he's talking about the shepherd's tools here. And I took two, uh, unto me two staves, the one I called beauty and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Then said I, I will not feed you. That dieth, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. And it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said to them, If you think it good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price. There was a prize that was a prize out of them, and I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut asunder mine own staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd, for lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that be cut off, and they shall seek the young one. Nor heal that it is broken, nor feed that the stand is still, but he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idle shepherds that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. Our Heavenly Father, I pray in the next few moments that you would help us to make sense of the text, to understand it. Lord, what You intended for this original audience to understand through these words. And then, Lord, I pray we would take that understanding and make application for our lives. Lord, we need help with this, and I pray that You would give that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank You so much for standing. Interesting text. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, a fascinating story unfolds. It's a thought that I have preached sermons from a numbers of times. And what happens in 1 Samuel 8 is uh, Samuel the prophet has grown old. And he's he's had a great ministry. The Lord has been with Samuel, and he he's led Israel not as a king, but as God's regent or agency in that nation. But he grows old, and in his place, in his stead, I suppose he's going to retire in a way. Samuel places his two sons in charge in the leadership position. Now, while Samuel was an excellent prophet, um, being an excellent father wasn't something that he he did well. And his two sons were somewhat corrupt. Somewhat needs to be subtracted. His two sons were corrupt, they were vile, and they were evil. And the people, of course, had a problem with this. And uh, and so they asked these men to be removed. But they went too far. They not only asked the boys to be removed, but they made a request to Samuel. And they said, give us a king like the nations round about us. And so what they wanted was to identify with the culture, with the, the way that other nations conducted themselves in a political system. And so they said, you know, we don't just want these boys, but we want a king. And so they cried out to Samuel to give them the king. Well, this greatly displeased Samuel, and so he took this request of the people to the Lord. He, he knew God wouldn't be happy, and so basically God says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, or my idea of a theocracy, of being led by God, they're rejecting me. God says this to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And so Samuel goes back to the people and says, um, you know, God says this is not good, and so the Lord says to Samuel, tell them the manner of the king that they'll have one day. And so Samuel goes back and tells them, Okay, if you want a king, well, one day uh, a king will rise up, and here's what he'll do: he will take your sons, and he will take your daughters, and he will make them servants. And this this king one day will take your horses, and he will take your vineyards, and he will take some of your homes, and he will he will impart upon you inordinate taxes. And it goes through all the things in the ways that a future king can and would abuse them if they choose following the world's design for a political leadership rather than the theocracy that God had intended. And so what was happening here, it's not that the people wanted the two sons gone was evil, but instead of just saying, we want you back or another godly man to lead us in God's stead, they asked for something that was worldly. And, And and they want to be in this way like the world. And so, you know, when I preach this text in the past, I get to this great principle, to me it's a great principle, is, is that if we're not careful, you and I can pers- persist in wanting something to the point that we get what we want, but we lose what we had. And so while the people for the moment had a leadership that wasn't, you know, what they wanted the two boys, what they had was God. And they had God's favor, they had God's blessing, they had God's promises, and, and, and God was their leader. And, and they, they should let God work out the leadership and let Him substitute other leaders in, but they went too far. And so often in life, we've all probably discovered this in lesser ways if we're not careful, we push, we want, and we get what we want. And then, all kinds of ways, we lose the joy and the blessings of what we had. This is a mistake that often teenagers will make. They, 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 they want to revolt. They don't leave mom and dad. They want to do same, And they get what they want, but things don't always turn out. Uh, we sometimes get what we want in terms of debt, and then we lose what we had, um, freedom, you know, safety. We get what we want in terms of, of immorality, and then we lose our purity and our testimony. You get the idea, right? Well, that's a lot of what's in view here. But if I was to restate that principle um, based on 1 Samuel 8 and really the idea of the text, I would also say it this way that in time, people almost always get the king they deserve. You follow that thought? In time, a people, a group, congregation, a business, whatever you want, application you want to make, in time, people almost always get the ruler, the leader, the king they deserve. A king, in time, is really nothing more than a reflection of the people who allowed him to be here. Now, what's well, a sober thought if you just think that through? And a lot I want to say about that, but I won't. But it's something we should pay attention to. Well, that's the big idea of the text tonight. Zechariah was once again a post-exile prophet trying to get the people of God after 70 years of exile back on track. They've been in Babylonian captivity, they're coming back, they're in the midst of rebuilding the temple, they keep getting off track with that a little bit. And so Zechariah's mission along with Haggai was to get these people back to work serving God, uh, with, with, with obeying the covenant relationship between the people and the Lord. Um, they kept getting um, lost in their mission. They, they, as we learned last week, they they kind of got involved in idolatry again. They had a had poor rains, and so they they thought about maybe praying to to Baal again. And they were tempted because you know, the the pagans uh, 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 around them were doing that, and they seemed to be blessed. So there was a temptation to to do that, and uh, and then just to be disobedient to God. And and, and so Zechariah and and. Um, Haggai are saying, you know, don't go back in the same sins that caused you to go into captivity in the first time. So, what's happened now contemporarily, the people have been back to Jerusalem for maybe two to four years, and they've been rebuilding the temple. But once again, they were getting off track, and not just in the building of the temple, but but also in not serving God fully. They were... were, uh, um, not loving people the way they should have loved. They, they were, again, once again tempting with idolatry. And they were falling back into this old habit of allowing people in leadership who did not have their best interests in mind. And, and that's what's in view in our text today. So, what happens in chapter 11 is something brand new in the book of Zechariah. We've not seen this uh, before with this prophet. But God asks Zechariah, to perform what is called a sign act, a sign act—that's the term we give it—a sign act. Up to this point, Zechariah has sort of been like the Apostle John, Revelation. God has given him visions and dreams, and then an angel interpreted that, and then Zechariah would speak that to the people. And in the last couple chapters, God gave Zechariah oracles. An oracle really is just divine inspiration to speak a sermon or to preach a word of the Lord. And so we've seen you know, these visions and a couple of oracles, but now, this is brand new, God asked Zechariah to act out or to play out a sermon, if you will, to the people. Now, we've seen this in the Bible before. Uh, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah does this over and over. When we studied the book of Jeremiah, we, we saw this, that, that God would have Jer- Jeremiah go do something, that you know, the people would watch, and then you know, they were thinking, what's this guy doing? And then he would explain that in terms of how that affected, you know, the people. It was an illustration, you know, we might say, a living illustration. Uh, Hosea did this with Gomer. You know, he, Lord, the marriage of him with Gomer and her adultery was supposed to be a, a sign act of how the people of Israel were acting in an adulterous way to God. So, that's the idea of a sign act, and that's what is happening in Zechariah chapter 11. So if you understand that, it helps a lot of this become a little bit more clear. So let's just kind of look at these verses together very quickly and make some sense of them. Then we'll have a brief time of application. But in verses 1 and 3, there's this kind of uh, image of trees and a forest. And there's cedar trees mentioned, there's oak trees and fir trees mentioned. And uh, what's happening in these three verses is that these trees are all being destroyed. Um, There's something that was glorious and wonderful that is now being taken down and torn down and and burned. Uh, You have to remember that in the Middle East, trees were a precious commodity. Um, They just don't grow everywhere like they do here in Oklahoma, you know, in the States. Trees were precious and cedars and fir trees and Uh, oak trees. These were like, in a way like gold. They were very precious. They were sought after. Nations that had forests were typically very wealthy because they exported that lumber. And we know that even the the temple of God uh, exported a a lot of cedar and fir trees for the building of the temple. It was used partly in a structure, but more so for its beautification. It was just a very, uh, in a way we might not understand, a very precious commodity. So those who had these trees were wealthy and had status. So if you understand that, what's happening here is these nations, it's this idea of there are people who have this wealth and this status, and it's being taken away from them. There's a lot of ominous words used in these first three verses. There's fire, there's devour, there's howl, used repeatedly, there's fallen, there's spoiled, used repeatedly, and there's come down. All speaking of these trees. They're being burned. You need to howl about this. You you need to wail. In other words, there's something that was once in a position of great glory and and held promise and and prestige, and that's all been ruined. What was once a blessing is no longer a blessing. What was once prized and valued is now been destroyed. Well, verse 3 now makes a transition. Well, what's Trees being burned down, and we understand they're valuable and, you know, held in great esteem. What's that got to do with what's happening in, in Israel? Well, if you look at verse 3, it'll make some sense. So, it says, there's a voice of the howling of the shepherds. So, what we're seeing now, suddenly, shepherds lamenting, shepherds howling. Something's, something's being taken away from them. For their glory is spoiled. Okay, so stop. So, these fir trees and cedar trees is the picture, beautiful, whatever, and the doors were opened and they were burned. They were once valued and now they're worthless. And so, what God is saying is basically, the leaders of Israel, the pastors, the shepherds, they once held a glorious office. They once were in an office that was highly esteemed. They were something that was, um, that was a wealth of Israel. You follow me? They were something that was a prize, something the nation could be proud of. The, the leaders of Israel were something that, was, that, you know, the world could look to. But now, use all these same words, they have fallen. They have been destroyed. The, you know, they, they've allowed themselves to become devoured. They are spoiled. They've all come down. What it's basically saying is, like we learned last week, is that the leadership of Israel had failed. It had miserably failed failed. And so God's basically saying you're going to be judged. We learned that last week. The leadership of Israel is going to be judged because they've done a terrible job of stewarding the inheritance of God. So the trees are like Israel and the shepherds that they've lost their glory. Now it doesn't, it says shepherds and I don't know what leaders are specifically referenced here. Again, it's probably political. And it's probably spiritual. It would be all those who would be responsible for stewarding the nation of Israel. And they did not use their position of responsibility as God intended. And so now once again, God's saying, you're ruined. This leadership is corrupt. And you've forgotten leadership, that your job was to serve the people, not exploit the people. You're not doing what you do for yourself Shepherds do what they do for the sheep. And so a time of judgment's coming. And so just like you should, when you see the forest burning, man, what a, what a waste. Well, you're going to see the shepherds judged. And what a waste. And so God calls upon them you need to howl and, and, and mourn because what was once really special has been lost. So verse 4 begins the Sinek this thing that God asks Zechariah to do to, to, to preach the nation about the condition of the country. So verse 4 begins with Sinai, God tells Zechariah to install himself as Israel's leader. So especially what He, he says. He says, well here I want you, this, this nation again is falling, it's, it, it's going back to the same old habits of idolatry, it, it's going back once again if it's not careful, and, and, and to allow these leaders to corrupt. So what I want you to do is Zechariah I want you basically, and I'm, I'm adding some color here, is to march into the, the city of Jerusalem and install yourself a shepherd. Okay? You got the picture? I want you to become their leader. Um, whoever was leading them would have done a good job. What many commentators believe is that we know that Joshua and Zerubbabel were the two primary leaders of, of Israel when they came back from captivity. What many commentators believe is the people had rejected Zerubbabel from being the primary leader. Now, we knew he was a governor, but they didn't accept him for long. And so, what we believe is there, it's a kind of rejection of the, of the lineage of David that's happening here. So, that aside, Zechariah, you go and you become the chief shepherd, the leader of the city of the nation. And so, in verse 5, he does that. And now, what happens stands in opposition to what's been happening. Verse 5 tells us what's been going on. It kind of gives us a backstory. In verse 5, what we learn is that the leaders had been taking advantage of the people. And they had been enriching themselves at the flock's expense. And then when people were in need, they had no pity. They did nothing about it, whether they were young or old. The the, the leaders, the shepherds, were just indifferent to the plight of the people. And I, I can't tell you why the people were indifferent to that. Maybe they were getting what they wanted maybe these leaders weren't making any demands from the Lord on them. Maybe these leaders weren't saying, well, here's how God wants us to live. I I don't know why the people weren't revolting to this kind of leadership, but somehow there's culpability here between both parties. So in verse 6, God says something fascinating as Zechariah begins his new post as the leader of the nation. He says in verse 6 basically that the people are responsible too. And so God says, okay, these mighty trees, these shepherds have fallen. And so the people are probably going, yeah, that's right. And then God looks, okay, for our purposes He looks at the people assembled here, and He says, and by the way, you're culpable too. And I'm not going to protect you anymore. I'm not going to take care of you anymore. And I'm not going to have pity on you anymore. And so God's looking at the people who are underneath the poor leadership, and he's basically saying this, you've allowed this to happen. You, you have not um, removed this bad leadership. I don't know the reason specifically they tolerated this. Once again, maybe because these people made no spiritual demands on them, but God is saying you are going to have some culpability here as well. You, you might have some power to throw them out, to reject them. You could have chosen better leaders, but you have become apathetic complacent and indifferent. You've done nothing concerning the leadership that is corrupt again. You're allowing it. And again, the backstory is they may have been rejecting God's man in Zerubbabel. So in verse 7, the sign act continues. We get a little bit of the back story. So now in verse 7, the sign act continues. So what happens here, this is interesting. Zechariah takes up two staves. Now staves a stick, right? And so Zechariah takes two staves, and, and most likely what he has here are two instruments, uh, maybe like a shepherd's rod and a shepherd's staff. Both sticks, one curled, one knot, one used for prodding and one for helping and protecting. But the point is, two big sticks, two staves. These are shepherd's tools. And then he names them. And these names are interesting. They don't mean anything to us initially, but what he names beauty, Okay. Now, the etymology of the word beauty has to do with indicating favor or blessing. So, this stave, this shepherd's tool, I'm leading you, get the picture. Zechariah steps out, and he's leader. He's got two sticks. This one's name's beauty. In other words, this one represents God's blessing. This one represents God's favor. You follow me, you follow God, and what will you get? You will get God's favor, you will get God's blessing, you'll get beauty. Y'all with me? The other one's called bands. Okay? This etymology, this word is a little, little more difficult, but, but I think the, the big idea is the word bands means unity. Um, it, uh, it, it means um, it's a pledge. It, it's, Brian, I'll help you, and I need you to help me. That's the idea kind of bands. It's, a, it's kind of a, a pledge or a promise to, to do something, it's unity between us based on the pledge that we make to one another. You all follow me on that? So, it's it's like a a promise where we both agree to do our part. So, I'm your leader, and and I'm here to lead you, and I have beauty, God's blessing, and and, and God's favor, and I have bands. I can bring unity. I can can fulfill a pledge to you if you'll do your part. And so, that's that's what's happening here. And so, in verse 7, the very end of verse 7, I believe, look there, and there's this... This short little quip says, and I fed the flock. Okay, so Zachariah, he steps in. God told me to lead you, I'm gonna lead you. Here's beauty, here's bands, here's God's favor, here's a blessing, here's his promises. And so he leads them. And they're all going, wow, okay, here we go. Well, his very first thing he does is to clean house. Okay, he's gonna clean the corruption that's already back in Jerusalem. And so what he does, and I don't know why this number is given, but it is, he, he, he fires three of the leaders that I guess were representative of all the corrupt people. So he, three guys he fires, three shepherds he gets rid of, okay? kind of get the idea, a guy steps into a new business, corporation that's been run corruptly, he says, you, you, you are gone, you're, you're part of the corruption, you guys are out, we're going to you know, get a new regime in here. Well, this is what happens next is interesting. The people don't like that, right? They don't like that, and so it, it, in, in the Hebrew, it, it, it sort of indicates like the three guys who are fired are mad at him, which I'm sure they were, but that's really not what it means by that. Zacharias steps in and fires three leaders, and the people are mad at him is the idea, and so basically, what's said here is uh, Zechariah says, "I." I'm trying to lead these people, but they don't want to follow, as evidenced by, I'm trying to clean the house, make things right, and they're griping and complaining. This is like the people of Israel did to Moses. So, what's basically being said here I'm just growing weary of their complaints. I'm growing weary of the fact they don't want to serve God. And by the way, they don't like me either. Okay, they abhor me is the word. This word means despised. So, I loathe them because they won't follow God. And they despise me because I'm trying to get them to follow God. Is what's being said here. You guys with me? Okay. Okay. I'm going to believe that you are, and with the silence is consent here that you're with me. So there's reciprocal angst between the man who's trying to get people to follow God and the people who don't want to follow God. It's happening right here. And so after an unspecified amount of time, verse nine, Zechariah says, "I'm out. I quit." And this is all you know, ordained by the Lord. So Zechariah quits. Verse nine. He's I'm done. Now, I think we can emotionally identify here. Someone comes in and they try to help somebody, and they try to help. They try to help. They try to help. They try to help, and you reject. And you reject. And you reject. And I'm going i trying to keep you from your self-destructive ways, and you won't. You won't stop. And everything I do, you're fighting me. And you know I'm giving you counseling, and you're not listening. I, 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 I offer you support, and you won't take it. And at some point, it's like I'm out. You know, and you're making me unhappy and I'm and, and I'm making you unhappy. So he says, I'm out, I quit. He says, You want to die? Go ahead and die. You're gonna be cut off from God? Be cut off from God. In other words, if this is what you want, well then This goes back to my original part from something. Like that. If this is what you want, this is what you're gonna get. I am going to let you have it. He says, I will not feed you anymore. Because basically you don't want to be fed or led in a godly way. So if you want to die, die. If you want to be cut off, you can be cut off. If you want to devour one another, then you just go ahead and devour one another. And so then he takes the staff, first staff, beauty, and he takes it over his knee, that's how I picture it, and he breaks it. Okay, that's, now what that represents is pretty obvious, isn't it? I'm here as God's man. I tried to lead you. You rejected my leadership. So you just rejected God's blessing and favor, crack. It's, it's a sign. It's a, it's a visual illustration of what's happening here. Um, I was here to try to lead you in the ways of God. You said, no, don't want it. So then he goes, <laughs> these stories are so cool, like think. You may not enjoy them, but they're, they're cool. So then he goes to people. This all has meaning. So he goes to people, says this give me what you think my, my time was worth. Or is he asked for payment, remuneration. I've served as your leader, it doesn't tell us how long he served as leader, but he goes to and says, so pay me what you think I'm worth. <laughs> and so there's more to this than we might be able to see. And so they weigh it out and say, well, here's 30 pieces of silver. Okay. Well, what may, may not be immediately obvious is that was an insult. Historically, it's an insult. 30 pieces of silver was a very specified amount of money that was given to purchase a slave in Israel, Israel's history. So they're basically saying you're worth more to us than a slave, and of course we could look forward even to the es- you know the future eschatology of this. That's what was paid for Jesus, you know, um, betrayal as well. That's not so the point, but um, another way to understand that you go out and eat, and you have a hundred dollar meal, and you give the waiter or waitress a dollar tip. It's an insult. You know, in or giving nothing would be less of an insult than giving a dollar bill. That's intentional. Well, so, that's what's happening here. And so, God says, you know, take that tip that it's, 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 it's um, which verse is it here? In verse uh, 13, I think, where He calls it goodly. Um, yeah, 13. It, the word goodly means magnificent. Literally, it means magnificent, lordly, princely. Take that lordly, magnificent, extravagant gift. It's totally rhetorical. Uh, It's facetious. Take that huge tip and throw it away. So he throws it to the potter in the temple. I don't know why the potter. um, Didn't have time to sort that out, but the point is he just throws the insult away. So he asks for payment. He gets an insult, and so he moves on. And so he he says, I'm going to take this magnificent gift and give it away. So then he takes a second stave called bands, and he breaks that one. And he adds this deal, I'm going to break you know, the relationship between Israel and Judah. Okay, so when they came back from Babylon to Jerusalem the hope was that God would reunite the nation, that uh, Israel would come out of Samaria and, and as the people of uh, Judah and Jerusalem came back the nation would all be back one big happy family again. That was kind of the national hope. And there was reasons for that beyond just even you know, brotherly love. There was inheritance tied to all these family names getting right. So basically what God is saying is I'm, you're, you're just not going to get your hope. You're not going to get what you think you're going to get. There's, there, there's this kind of pledge we had. But you broke it, so I'm breaking it. And this is the same language we've seen all through the minor prophets. He breaks beauty, their, their blessing, and then he breaks You know their their prospect of what they want in the future—they're not going to get it. Zachariah says it's not going to happen. So what you hope for isn't going to come to fruition. So in verse 15, Zachariah takes up now two new staves. Okay, so these are broken; they're done. But these are supposed to represent the the staves of the foolish shepherd. Okay, here it it, it, was—it's a picture of. Here I was the godly leader, and you said no. Okay, so take that guy, throw him away. Here you are, you're going to get a foolish leader with two new instruments. Get the picture? You said no to God's leader, to beauty and bands. So here comes a new guy, and the verses end, 13 through 17, basically saying that this guy right here, you wanted bad? You want to reject God? This guy's going to give it to you. Words, I'm going to give you the king, the leader, the shepherd that you deserve. And he's going to devour you. He's not going to care about your kids. He's not going to care about your seniors. He's going to claw you. And he's going to, he's just absolutely going, well, he's just going to kind of, he's going to kind of be like you. You with me? Because in time, The people almost always get the king and the leaders they deserve. Now, if I just stopped right there and we just considered that truth for a moment in America today, does that not just terrify you a little bit? So a takeaway might be this, it is only when we do things God's way that we can expect God's blessing and true prosperity. It is only, and I, I wish I could press what I feel, it is only when we do things God's way that we experience true blessing and prosperity. We're not gonna get it another way. You understand that? You understand what I'm saying? You're not gonna get it through a particular candidate or a political system or a political party. That's not what God says. A nation is blessed. Blessed is the nation whose God is what? The Lord. What is the hope of America? Well, it's, it's people doing things God's way. Now, we can hope for different policies and things we can agree with, but if America is to be blessed, then we have to serve the Lord. It's only when we do things God's way, then we can expect blessing and true prosperity. In the text, there are two great failures in view. First and obvious, the failure of the leaders. Here were people placed in a position of leadership, um, and, and here I'm talking about biblical leadership. And uh, it wasn't about title. It wasn't supposed to be about power. It wasn't supposed to be about prestige. Rather, biblical leadership is supposed to be about serving, sacrificing, guiding, and helping. It's not about gaining wealth for personal advantage, exploitation, and advancing yourself. Rather, it's about taking weighty responsibility for the oversight of God's heritage. It's about giving up time and treasures for the sake of other people. The leaders of Israel had totally, these shepherds had totally lost these things. They had lost their way. They had become entrenched in their political and religious systems and that's all they cared about was advancing their causes within those systems and they exploited the people for advantage. And if you didn't know, that's absolutely still the same temptation that leaders face today. Not just in America, but across the globe. To use their position for self-serving purposes rather than being servants of the people. When we consider the political and quote-unquote religious leaders of our day, you can have your opinions, but I think they've lost their way. As a, as a group, lost their way. The agendas are their own. They say things and do things. They develop platforms for this purpose, to get votes, to keep themselves in power. Now, I'm not saying there's no good people, not good agendas. So that's not my point. I'm talking about the system. I'm talking about the system. And it's no less true in a lot of America's religious establishment either. How many pastors and spiritual leaders have we identified in some form of corruption today? I mean, it's just proverbial. It's ongoing. All the TV evangelists, you know, they're an easy target. But you, you get it, right? How much exploitation has gone on in religious circles? These are people who are supposed to be caring about you. What we want is your dollar. And, and, and I'm telling you, the, the, the temptations here are so subtle. A guy can get in this position, and if he's not careful, in the name of God, it can all be about growing the church to be certain numbers, to get a certain place, to do all these things, and somewhere along the way they lose sight of, my job is to get on my knees and serve you. And if we grow, we grow, and if we don't, we don't. But my job is to sacrificially give my life and lay my life on an altar for you all. Not to be the pastor of a 5,000 member church so I can go speak at different conferences. Now I'm not against people who can grow churches like that and go speak at conferences, I'm not against that. God knows their heart. But I'm saying to you, from my position, I know that can easily happen if we're not careful. It can just happen. And all of a sudden what we do become about pastors being in these little clubs and doing their little things and so they can all speak to each other and all this stuff. We just lose their way. They're not working to create godly change and help for people. And it's a problem. There's a second failure. And the second failure is with the people. You know, followers have responsibilities too. And what's the follower's responsibility? Well, when the leadership is right, is to follow it. But in the right way, the responsibility of followers is in the right spirit, through the right means, is to keep their spiritual leaders accountable. It's to make sure they're staying, for our purposes, doctrinally straight, philosophically straight, practically straight, with the right priorities, don't get off course. And if they do, they have a responsibility in the right way, with the right spirit, to address that, because... Look here, this is your church too. And you have a responsibility to serve God just like I do. And so to say nothing and to do nothing and to allow things to go to to the left or whatever, you know, in, in a bad way, and you just sit there and say, well, you know, whatever. No, that's not okay. There comes a time when God says, you need to take care of this too. You have some ownership in my heritage as well, in the nation and today in His churches. The text clearly teaches that people are culpable for allowing corrupt leaders to lead them. And yet, as the New Testament teaches, people so often do that because itchy, the preachers give them their itching ears what they want to say. The preachers stay in the pulpit and say, well, you know, Lord bless you and give five bucks and you'll get a hundred And, you know, uh, let's just forget anything that that has any biblical standards or holiness or requirements. And let's just not worry about really serving God. Let's just do what feels good. And, you know, let's have a great big party up here all the time with a laser light show. And I'm not trying to pick on particular methodologies. My point is this. The Lord just gets lost in the show. And the people like the show. So they say nothing. Well, so who's, who's the fault there? Well, the guy behind the desk and the people in the pew. And, and God says, you know, I'm going to judge this guy and then I'm not going to protect or bless you anymore if you don't, if you don't take care of this. And so it's just mutual culpability. All too often, a nation, of people, a church, allow poor political and spiritual leadership most likely because they're not asking anything of them. And once again, it's because leaders are almost always a reflection of the people whom they serve. And I, I, it just makes my brain break when I think about that. If the people are ungodly, or if the leader is ungodly, it's most likely because the, the, the people they serve are as well. So I go back to this principle. Followers nearly always get the leaders they deserve in politics and in a church. Now that makes me think, and I sure hope it makes you think. You know, leaders can't just be likable. They do need to be respectable. And leaders can't just say nice things. Leaders need to do hard things make hard decisions. Leaders sometimes need to take people in places they don't want to go. Because sometimes doing what's right isn't easy. Leaders need to have ethics and have character and be genuinely servant-minded. And if you want a leader to be that way, well, you need to be that way too. In 1 Peter chapter 5, you can turn there if you want. My time's almost, well, it's, I'll take time. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. There's just some direction here. Chapter 5 verse 1, the idea is leaders, shepherds, pastors. The elders which are among you I exhort, whom I am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also the particular glory that shall be revealed. Here's the leader's job feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not of constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in a sample to the flock. Why? Because that's the kind of servant leader that Jesus was. That's our responsibility. In the words of Jesus, in John 21, 17, the leader's job is to feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? You want to be a leader? Well, then that means you're going to, have to give your life for the sheep. Hebrews 13. If you want to turn there very quickly, we'll close with these. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse number seven, for the people's part, remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, or at least they're supposed to. They're supposed to. As they must give an account, which they did in Zechariah, and uh, one day I will too. That's why not many people should desire to be leaders, the Bible says. Right. They must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. I've got to stop. But here, here, here's the point I have an unbelievably grave responsibility to be the right kind of shepherd. And you have a grave responsibility when the leadership is right to follow—not fuss, not fight, not divide, not backbite. There's always a billion opinions. But someone's got to lead. And you also have the responsibility when a leader, including me or another, doesn't handle things appropriately in the right way with the right spirit through God's leadership. Make sure that's addressed because it's God's church and your church too. This is a really sober warning for me to do my job right and for you to do your job right. So God help us.